Hi, thank you for listening to the Spotlight Report, our weekly podcast in which we sit down and speak with current academics about their life and research in lab. If you like the Spotlight Report, you can subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page, or find it on any common podcast app. You can also directly find the podcast on our website, which is loft.optics.arizona.edu backslash podcast. Please comment any questions or ideas for people you would like us to interview in the future. Additionally, if you have more feedback, feel free to email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. This week on Spotlight Report, we are speaking with Abdullah Zafar, who is a graduate student studying nuclear engineering with an emphasis on uh, plasma research. So again, we get to touch on plasma physics, um, and he has very interesting perspective because he deals with optics and diagnostics for uh, plasmas. So Abdullah, thanks for being here. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Um, so just to get started... Uh, why don't you talk about what brought you into uh, nuclear engineering in grad school in general? Okay. Um, well, nuclear engineering, I, I have a very, like, <laughs> a very childish reason why I picked nuclear engineering. I, I remember I was in high school and, uh, you know, the outreach director at NCCA, she came and she gave a presentation on nuclear engineering. And I was just like, wow, like, you know, it'd be so cool to be a nuclear engineer, you know, it just sounds awesome, and, like, like yeah, that's what I'm, you know, kind of, like, the very, like, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just <laughs> very childish reason, and that's how I got started in nuclear engineering, and, uh, yeah, and grad school was a little bit different story. I worked for a few years, and uh, then kind of, um, you know, reevaluated, like, exactly what I wanted, um, you know, for a career and a job, and then decided to come back to grad school. Okay, so did you work in in industry in nuclear engineering prior to grad school? Yeah, I worked at a nuclear power plant for uh, for three years um, before I came huh. back to grad school. And yeah, it's you know, um, for anyone looking to go in industry, I mean, like especially a nuclear power power plant, they'll pay you you know hand over fist. Um, or however the saying goes, um, you know, lots of money to do exactly what they want you to do. You know, it's um, so that's the caveat. They'll pay you a lot of money, but, you know, you have to kind of just be a, a, a gear in the system, you know. A cog, right, right. Yeah, a cog in the machine. That's, yeah. Yeah, I I had heard similar from uh, Chris, who our listeners will know, we spoke to him last week, mm-hmm. and... Uh, that was kind of his pushback against wanting to go into a nuclear facility type of thing. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I think I was kind of like when I got out of undergrad, I was like, I don't want any more equations. Just give me like stuff to do and I'll do it. Right. And, you know, it was, you know, I definitely got that there. Um, but I think after a few years, I kind of, you know, started to think, well, you know, I do want, uh, you know, a career uh, that, you know, kind of requires a little bit more. You know, just as far as, uh, 
um, as far as the kind of problems you look at. So I started uh, taking some online classes for grad school at NC State. I loved it. And I was like, well, this feels very right. And then uh, I decided to jump jump ship and start start uh, this long grad school process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, no, the never-ending grad school process, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so great. So what brought you, more specifically, what brought you into plasmas? Um, that's, uh, that's a good question because, you know, as I, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, in undergrad, I worked in a plasmas lab. Um, uh, you know, I, one of the professors at NC State, he was just like, oh, I have a couple projects you guys can get involved with. And me and, you know, my best friend, we just kind of like went down and um, started, uh, you know, messing around with some equipment and ended up making a plasma. And uh, it was so cool because it was glow, like it was glowing, you know. And I was, <laughs> I, I, apparently, I'm fascinated by very simple things. <laughs> and so I was like, it's glowing. This is awesome. And then um, I think that was my initial interest. And then when I started looking at grad school again, I, I really, you know, I'd been in, uh, you know, the energy industry for three years, and I really kind of started to see the things that it lacked. Um, and, you know, just, I, for me, it kind of turned into more of a, well, you know, if I go to grad school, I really want to solve, like, you know, bigger problems. And, um, you know, I was, I started getting interested in nuclear fusion and that research, and, you know, plasma has had has a, a huge role in that. So I was like, well, you know, I, there's that connection, you know, big problem, you know, and something I'm already interested in and uh, decided to come to grad school specifically for that. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I, I, plasmas, at least to my experience, is such like a specialized aspect of research. And I really haven't met, I've now met two people. I've met you and, and I knew Chris yeah. uh, who've done it. So that's always one of my favorite questions is, Why'd you go into plasma? <laughs> yeah, I think typically you just stumble into it, I think. Right, <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, so, again, our most of our listeners are going to have a, more of a background in optics. Um, okay. Could you just state briefly what a plasma is and maybe what some of the common, more understandable uses of it are? Okay. Um, so, the general definition of a plasma is, you know, it's the fourth state of matter. Um, so, you know, heat, you heat a, you know, a solid, you say ice, you know, it turns into a liquid, liquid turns into gas as you add more energy. And as you add more energy to a gas, it turns into a plasma. Um, and, you know, from, uh, I guess, a, a scientific aspect, the only difference between a gas and a plasma is, you know, in a plasma, you have charged particles, not just neutral particles. And, um, you know, that makes it things more complicated, but, you know, on uh, it, keeping the larger picture in mind, it's not, um, it's not that much different. You know? mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, you know, so some of the, you know, common uses of plasmas, um, I'd say the most uh, widespread use is semiconductor manufacturing. So, you know, even like anything from you know, cell phones to, um, you know, microchips to, you know, a, like other sorts of, you know, coatings and whatnot, uh, plasmas are a big player in, you know, kind of making um, all of that. And I know it's a general statement, like, oh, plasmas help make, you know, these things. Um, right. But yeah, generally, um, you know, not going into too much detail, that's generally what plasmas are. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's important to say because 
we do the same thing with, with optics. People go like, Oh, what's optics? And it's like, well, it's everywhere and <laughs> yeah. it's everything, uh, which isn't super helpful, but yeah, but it is astonishing cell phones in particular and coatings as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know speaking to you and Chris, that plasmas are integral in both of those and optics are as well. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. and that's usually the thing that people can most identify with is like, Oh, there's a, everyone has a cell phone or like everyone has glasses or have seen glasses that have coatings or something. So, so yeah, that's, it is, it is in some degree of everywhere, but yeah, no, it absolutely is. Um, so yeah, so why don't, why don't we get into it and why don't you, uh, describe what your research is? Cause you're sitting in lab on a Sunday. So yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I, it's, I, I'll tell you the same sob story. I think most uh, grad students in, you know, the final leg of their PhD will tell you, but yeah, yeah I'm sitting in a lab, uh, in my lab on a Sunday, um, getting data, running experiments, um, you know, trying to crank it out. So I, I can, you know, graduate a little bit quicker. Um, right. Yeah. The, yeah. The dream. Right? Yeah. The dream. Yeah. Make some actual, you know, money again. Um, yeah. So the, you know, I, I, the, pretty much the big picture for my uh, research is that, you know, with fusion energy, what we're trying to do is, you know, essentially make a sun on Earth, you know, very on a smaller scale and essentially use that to extract energy and solve all the world's energy problems you know, world hunger goes away for, you know, mm-hmm. all, you know, all that stuff. Right. So, um, that's the big picture, but if you get into the, some of the specifics, you know, if we are trying to create a sun, uh, on earth, I mean, how do you contain it? Right. You, you know, do you put it in a glass bottle? You know, like, you know, those are the questions, you know, you start to have to actually ask yourself. And well, I, I watched the Spider-Man movie. I think oh, that yeah. they solved it already. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I, you know, honestly, I that's one of my favorite movies. Just because, you know. Yeah. Hey, it, sorry. Yeah, that's actually going to work it on. You know, it ain't like it's spider thingy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, those questions you know, becomes very, very pertinent. And um, the only way we know how is to put it in a, a metal vacuum vessel. And to you, we use uh, magnets to contain the plasma. Um, and so, you know, that works pretty good, right? I mean, it, even if, if you just try to visualize it, like if you want, if I have like uh, uh, a piece of metal that I don't want to hit this wall, you know, a wall, right? I can put a magnet on the wall and just, you know, that use that magnetic, uh, or sorry, if I have a piece of, if I have a magnet and I don't want it to hit the wall, I can put another magnet on the wall and that way when the magnet comes close, it'll repel it, right? Um, but for the most part, it, you know, it, there it will be some cases where the magnet actually still hits the wall. So it's the same thing with plasmas. You know, we want to keep it away, as far away from the, the boundary of our reactor as possible. Mm-hmm. My, re- my research comes in because um, that interface between the boundary and the actual um, wall itself, we don't really know much about it. Um, you know, if, if a plasma is sitting inside of a reactor... Um, and, you know, we're trying to, A, keep it away, but also shoot energy into it, you know, the physics is largely unknown, um, you know, and so we have good guesses, but now, uh, at this point in the game, what we need is, uh, you know, re- sophisticated techniques to understand that better. Um, so the uh, my research comes in is that, you know, we use uh, an, a spectroscopic technique to understand that boundary layer better. Hmm. Yeah. And... and uh... 
What is the scale of this boundary? Um, the scale of the boundary is extremely small. I mean, it, it, we're talking um, centimeters. Um, you know, it, it's yeah, the scale lengths are extremely small, um, which is funny because when they first made these reactors, they were, you know, the thought was like, well, we care what's going on in the center. We don't really care about the edge because the edge is so small, you know. Um, but uh, over the past 20, 25 years, what we've discovered is that the edge is actually extremely important and it actually feeds back into what's happening in the center of the reactor. And, you know, so that's kind of what's driving this research. Do you get, um, we, we spoke with someone who's studying um, turbulence with applications towards uh, quantum physics. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if in a high energy gas cloud effectively, do you get a lot of uh, flow issues and turbulence? Oh, you absolutely do. Um, you know, that is a huge, it's been a huge topic of research in fusion plasmas for uh, solid um, you know, that's, uh, 15, 20 years. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's becoming more and more important even. Um, and it's funny because the flow and turbulence are things that even I deal with, you know, in my plasma source, you know. Um, and yeah, so Flow and turbulence, absolutely huge. And, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that, you know, I'm working on is um, affected by that. Hmm. So, so let's, let's uh, get into the optics then. Um, What, how, how do you make your measurement? What is the, uh, tell me about this device. Okay. Uh, Well, uh, I, it's funny because the the measurement tech actually give me one second, Logan. Yeah, go uh, for my, it. My laser's acting a little funky. Uh, let me figure out what it's doing. Okay. Yep, it's good to go. Okay. So uh, the technique that um, you know I'm I'm working on is actually not a new technique. It's a um, a te- uh, it's a spectroscopic technique used traditionally in atomic physics. Um, and I think in the optics realm, you guys might have heard of it. It's called Doppler-free saturation spectroscopy. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, the, the basic premise of the, uh, the technique is that you have a, one laser beam that shines through your um, measurement volume in one direction, and you have a second, you know, more powerful beam that will shine in the opposite direction of your measurement volume. And uh, the, the premise is that, um, you know, you, uh, you essentially measure only the atoms that have a quote-unquote zero velocity component, which, you know, it's, it's you know, kind of, uh, uh, a, you know, mumbo-jumbo unless, you know, I explain that, but, um, which I can in a little bit, but, you know, the technique itself is, you know, um, yeah, it's just using two laser beams that go through your measurement volume in the opposite directions um, and, you know, allow you to measure uh, your atoms that are quote unquote stationary. Okay. Um, So for, for my specialty, it's uh, like we were talking about it earlier, it's measuring large, large mirrors. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is always key to us is the uh, precision and alignment tolerances, et cetera. So, yeah. If you don't, if you don't mind satiating my curiosity, how how truly uh, parallel are these laser beams? Oh, that's yeah, that's an extremely good question, um, Logan. Because uh, when I first started um, implementing this technique, um, it okay. So, um, 
you know, as I was mentioning, when I first started this, te- you know, um, technique, you know, I essentially made the the two, um, you know, counter propagating laser beams. I made them exactly uh, collinear, so it, they lied exactly on top of one another. Um, and what I found is I, that actually turned out to be a very bad idea um, because uh, a lot of the uh, laser instability would go back into my detector because the beam paths were exactly collinear. So right. essentially all I did was, you know, change the angle between them by uh, like right now it's about 1.5 degrees, mm-hmm. which doesn't sound like a lot, but that, you know, small of a change in the angle between them, that was enough where my measurement was still, you know, very good. But the, you know, whatever, um, you know, uh, instabilities from the laser, I, they weren't feeding back to my detector. Hmm. So let's, I, I want to uh, touch on this again, but why don't we, why don't we discuss what you're actually, you're actually measuring? You said that you're measuring zero velocity particles. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what I'm actually measuring, like um, taking kind of a step back, the, the big, uh, you know, um, the big thing for this specific technique is that what we want is a very high resolution spectroscopic measurement. Um, and Doppler broadening has been, the uh, kind of the main reason why for the past, um, you know, 30, 40 years, um, you know, the you can't get a high resolution measurement. Because even if you do, you know, just because your atoms are moving randomly throughout, you know, your measurement volume, that velocity, you know, um, uh, essentially just uh, smears out whatever measurement you might be trying to make. So mm-hmm. what we're, you know, what um, this technique uh, allows me to do is that, you know, instead of uh, having all these uh, atoms go all over the place and, you know, um, introduce this uh, this uh, Doppler broadening into my measurement that I don't really care about, um, with this technique, you know, I'm only measuring atoms that uh, are essentially zero velocity. So that means that I instead of, um, you know, having uh, this convoluting um, mechanism, what I can do is I can actually say, okay, that mechanism's gone. What else do I see in you know these measurements? And uh, take a look at such you know things like, okay, well, if I can now, I don't have this Doppler component that's feeding into my measurements. Okay, I can actually look at the magnetic and electric field, how they're affecting the atom itself. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So what is a zero velocity particle then? Um, how do you, how do you, how, how are you guys defining it? Yeah. So uh, it's another good question. And then, you know, I, I guess on the podcast, you know, people can't say, but you know, whenever I say zero velocity, I do air quotes around it. Um, you know, cause it, you're absolutely right. It's not a zero velocity particle. What it is though, it's zero velocity. Um, compare when you look at the, the laser beam line as your reference. So if, mm-hmm. you know, my laser beam is pointing in you know, the positive uh, X direction, then um, a zero velocity atom would be uh, an atom that's not, uh, that has a zero velocity component in the X direction. So, I right. mean, yeah, so it's moving in, you know, Y and Z, just not in the X direction. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you're saying, that allows you to basically eliminate um, some degree of freedom and focus in more on the actual inherent properties yeah. that you're interested in. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, this Doppler broadening, um, it, it essentially, it's a very, very large effect. Um, and the effects that, you know, that these magnetic and electric fields produce, it's very, very small. So if you if you don't do that, you won't be able to look at these effects. 
mm-hmm. you know, eliminating them, it does allow us to actually probe into these things. Uh, and what do you, what is your, what is your like measurement data? Um, I can't, I can't wrap my head yeah. around it right now. Like what is the actual raw data that you get out? Yeah. Yeah. So the raw data that I am actually looking at is literally it's a spectrum, like it's wavelength versus intensity. And cause that's what mm-hmm. I'm after. Um, and you know, it, like when you take a measurement from a spectrometer, that's what you get, right? Um, just wavelength versus intensity. And most of the time you just care about that peak intensity. Um, you know, but like, you know, our measurement is like, if you take one peak that you might see on a spectrometer, um, and blow, you know, magnify that by about, you know, 10 to 20 times, you know, that's kind of what the level we're actually getting down to. Huh? Yeah. So, you know, spectrometers, they work very, very well for, you know, just, uh, if you don't care about, you know, super high resolution measurements, but we care way more. So, um, yeah, essentially the data itself, you know, it's just a spectrum, but you know, the span is like extremely small. Right. Right. So, um, not necessarily, not all of our listeners are optical engineers, Mm -hmm. much less, uh, not all optical engineers are super familiar with, uh, spectrographer, spectrographer. So just to give a little, little history, uh, or background to it, Uh the traditional operating mechanism is you take a source, um, and you spread it into its constituent wavelengths and you sweep those wavelengths individually through, uh, some sample. And then you record what transmits, or you can do it in, you can do it in various other ways, but it's basically separating your source wavelength into individual, um, wavelengths and seeing how the, how those wavelengths interact with your, um, sample. Yeah. So, but, but you're using lasers. So what is your source? How? So, yeah, it's a little bit different. You know, most of the times I think, um, most people are familiar with, you know, like in, uh, in, in chemistry lab, you know, where, um, I remember, right. yeah, I remember in high school, you know, where they'll take like a flame and they'll burn a specific, you know, thing and you look at it, you know, um, through, you know, one of those, uh, I forget what they're called, one of those, uh, films and, Oh yeah. 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 And you know, so it'll like, if you, I, you burn something, it'll burn blue, you know, or like, um, or, you know, red or something. Yeah. So, um, yeah, essentially, I mean, uh, it's the exact same concept, like you're saying, except, you know, the difference is that, um, you know, instead of like, instead of looking at like, oh, this thing is red, this thing is blue, we're getting down to the level. Okay. This thing is, you know, this type of red, this thing is slightly like, you know, a different, you know, wavelength. So it's like a slightly different red. What, what resolution do you get down to in wavelength? Or in, in frequency, whatever is easier. So in wavelength, um, I my resolution is um, sub nanometer resolution, um, and pretty far below sub nanometer. Um, uh, my re- like the measurements I'm doing right now, um, a, the entire um, measurement itself is done on. Uh, let me take a look here. It's done point. Zero zero six um, nanometers. Whew. Yeah, and my laser is sweeping that point zero zero six nanometers band. Yeah. Point zero zero six. So that's sub angstrom. Yeah. Uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, sub angstrom. 
That's yeah. That's, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah. So yeah. what's your what's your what what laser are you using? Um, the laser I have is uh, a diode laser, um, and uh, yeah, it's a it's pretty low power. It's a forty five milliwatt laser from Topica, um, and uh, it the performance is pretty good. But I wish I had a, a nicer toy to play with. <laughs> And uh, and how broad of a spectrum? If you're you're getting 0. 0.006 nanometers, how broadly are you measuring it? Um, so the, uh, you're saying how broad is the spectrum itself that I'm measuring? Yeah, like are you curious? Because so you can buy uh, maybe not that accurate, but you can buy um, devices that can measure like UV to IR or mm-hmm. just visible. Are you are you interested over like a broad band, or are you guys looking at like a handful of nanometers? What's the scope? Oh yeah, I, I so I the thing I'm interested in is uh, one specific helium transition. Um, and, okay. And that specific helium transition, it's um, you know it goes from the n equals six down to the n equals two level, um, you know like the Bohr atom model and whatnot. Yeah. And so in this specific transition, it occurs at uh, four fourteen point uh, four nine three nanometers, and so hmm. that you know that's the that's what dictates you know where we are. Um, as far as the span goes, that kind of um, uh, I'm specifically looking at how this line, this specific transition. Like if I have a helium atom in a magnetic or electric field, how that behaves, and so the spectrum mm-hmm. will change. And so I'm you know only interested in like that point zero zero six nanometer um right right, uh, right range yeah and your i presume your plasma is a helium plasma yeah yeah this this particular plasma that i'm doing the experiments is a helium plasma okay cool yeah. um so do you know the wavelength of your laser source um yeah the laser source itself i'm able to um uh, the laser itself is a four ten nanometer um laser um and that uh you know for me it means that um you know the band of the laser is roughly like uh, five nanometers um so right, right. yeah so um so uh, i you know i i think they when we got the laser we called it a 410 nanometer laser but it goes from 410 up to 415 um right yeah so the the wavelength band is not very high and i'm on the edge of it um but Due 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 to uh, uh, in part Doppler broadening as well. Um, uh, can you say that again? So I only say it because yeah. um, I just had a long discussion with a friend who whose focus is on quantum physics and lasers. But mm-hmm. um, I get this is a this is a broader issue that I have kind of with science. You mentioned yeah. it in chemistry when you said the Bohr model, and yeah. we use quotations which our listeners can't can't see but yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing with lasers you tell people oh laser is a single wavelength yeah, yeah. laser is not a single wavelength one of the reasons it's it's spread amongst um some some number of nanometers or whatever yeah. and part of that is because doppler broadening is going on inside the laser cavity yeah and um you know i for our laser um i you know for our applications I, I will say it is, you know, it's monochromatic, meaning it is the wavelength, you know. Right. Yeah, because, you know, I think that was a very particular big concern, you know, because you're absolutely right. You know, our measurement doesn't mean anything if our the if our laser, you know, is not 
or the span of our laser is like you know too large. Mm-hmm. So I'll say for I, I'm not sure exactly what that uh, you know line width of the laser is, um, but for our purposes, uh, it's small enough that it doesn't affect our measurements, which is pretty right, impressive, right. you know, given how fine our measurements are. Yeah, I'm actually uh, slightly surprised about it, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll totally defer to you on your setup. Um, so. I had read, I don't know if this is the case with your setup, but I had read one paper that, um, well, yeah, I guess more broadly, you're sitting in inside this cavity is a super energetic helium gas cloud, mm-hmm. which cannot possibly be good for uh, any optics or any optical surface. Yeah. So how, how do you get the measurement? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, you know, I, I, so... I'll say, um, you know, for our application, you know, we, we're thinking about a large uh, uh, fusion reactor, um, also known as a tokamak. Um, so for a tokamak, you know, you're absolutely right. Inside the, the plasma itself, it gets so hot, you can't stick stuff in there. Um, and that's where actually, uh, you know, my research started, where people were like, okay, we can't stick stuff in there. What can we put in there? And the question became, well, we can actually put laser, uh, a laser you know, like if we have a port on one side that's kind of far away from the plasma and a port on the other side, you know, uh, then we could shine a laser through it. And that way we're not, you know, actually putting anything in it and see what kind of a measurement we're able to get. And are your detectors on the other there uh, at the other at the port as well? Yeah. Either end? Yeah. Yeah. They're, I, I, yeah, they're on the uh, one of the um, ports at. Uh, where the one of the laser beam exits, um, mm-hmm. and you know it's funny because uh, the plasma I have is actually nowhere near that scale of like you know melting everything in sight like the sun, you know. Um, right, right. Yeah, the plasma I have is very uh, lo- it, it, a low temperature plasma is what we call it, so it's pretty benign for the most part. But um, you know the the same principles apply where we're you know not putting anything inside it. Right, definitely. Yeah, I mean. It doesn't need to be uh, too bad of an environment to really totally ruin a uh, ruin optical components. So. Yeah, I mean, you you probably know you know more about this than I do, but I don't even know how I would put like an optical component inside a vacuum chamber. You know, um, uh, what you I would try have to not consider. to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you try not to is the answer. Yeah, and I like that answer. <laughs> um. All right. So let me let me see if I can if I if I'm understanding this. Okay. You have a highly energetic helium cloud, which is a plasma. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ionized, so it has a charge to it. The particles have a charge. Yeah. And when you shine two pseudo-collinear lasers, mm-hmm. um, in effect, canceling canceling them out in one axis, yeah. uh, the electromagnetic radiation <clears throat> basically probes or is affected by the charged particles, which are traveling transverse to the to the beam path. Yeah, exactly. And you record the variation that occurs in that beam. Yeah, exactly. Um. Well, I know it's not that easy. So, what do you what do you do when you get the raw data? What uh, do you? Uh, yeah. So uh, the raw data. I mean, um, that uh, that's a very good question because it. I, it took me a solid um, while with a lot of help from, you know, people here at the lab that, 
to actually process the raw data. Um, you know, because essentially I have all these different signals. I have, um, you know, my uh, laser uh, wavelength, you know, from a wave meter that's, you know, scanning, um, you know, the, the wavelength itself. I have, uh, a, you know, a signal coming from my detector. Um, and then I have a, a third one. And I have a slew of other signals, you know, coming in that, um, you know, from the experiment itself. Um, essentially, what I, I the big thing for this experiment is that you have to make sure the timing for all the signals is accurate. Um, so, you know, I have all of, you know, essentially all of these raw data files that just have time and, you know, um, whatever uh, value it is. Um, and because, you know, I'm scanning the laser, you know, from low wavelength to high, you know, to, you know, go just periodically. The thing that make uh, I can use is that, okay, if I know all these signals are periodic, they all have to match up, you know, at the bottom of the wave, uh, the span and the top of the span. So, um, right. yeah, so all the signals I'll take, you know, align them uh, as they need. Um, and then the rest, honestly, is not that complicated. Um, the rest is just uh, making sure that the, uh, uh, the physics itself, uh, you know, is kind of popping out of uh, the spectrum. And I say that generally, but... You know, it's essentially just, you know, adding, dividing, subtracting, you know, a couple things here and there. And voila, I have a spectrum, uh, you know, on my laptop. Right, right. Yeah. Um, what type of accuracy and precision can you get? So you said, you said, oh, okay, well, we, we, we probe to 0 0.006 nanometers. Mm -hmm. um, this is... This is something I like to nitpick on, so I apologize. Yeah. I'm not yeah. I'm not dating era um, debating your your system, but yeah. I just like to ask: Is it really 0 0.006? Is it 0 0.006 plus minus something? Um, uh, yeah, so that's a, a, a very good question. Um, you know, it is actually uh, it is actually a lot more accurate than 0 0.006 um, nanometers, and. The, what actually enables that are two things um, are is number one, like you mentioned before, you know, how monochromatic or single wavelength the laser is. Um, so our wavelength or the wavelength of our laser is, you know, extremely dead on. Um, and number two is the uh, is the wave meter itself, which, you know, just measures the wavelength of whatever source you put in. Um, and, you know, the wave meter that, uh, that I work with is actually probably the most expensive part of this entire setup. You know, if the entire optics system itself, um, including the laser, costs, uh, I'd say, uh, around 50 to 70 grand, the wave meter itself costs 70 grand. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. So it's, you know, uh, the, what actually enables is are the you know kind of the the interplay between like extremely high uh, resolution laser and you know the the wave meter itself uh, mm -hmm. and, yeah and the wave meter itself i mean it can measure down to down to 10 to the minus 5 10 to the minus 6 nanometers yeah it's it's wow, insane that's that's astonishing it really is i mean i i you know i'm not you know I, I don't have an optics background but i've worked with this equipment now and i i definitely appreciate whoever designed you know all of right, this stuff. Right. So props to you guys <laughs> no that's that's um that's astonishing to me i haven't uh 
I, I deal with, I, again, I deal with really big optics. So I don't have to worry about stuff down to that scale, yeah. um, but that's really, really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to ask what year you are in grad school, because I think that's my most hated question oh, I ever received from people. But I do, I do want to make a point that yeah. you've described this, you have the setup, you have lasers, you have the helium gas cloud. And um, to your credit, you've made it sound pretty straightforward and, and easy. I know it's not, but uh, it sounds like you have everything under, under control. So, so why does it take time? Why isn't this a... Uh, like a quick, you buy the stuff, set it up, and there you go, you have your results. Yeah, I mean, I, that's another very good question, Logan. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, I'll i say, you know, the biggest thing that I've just kind of learned over and over again in science and, you know, um, especially in grad school is uh, there has not been a single thing that I've tried where I read about it and I say, oh, this is how it should work. And then I set it up and it goes according to plan. Um <laughs> And, you know, a lot of it, I think, is because, um, it, you know, I'll say in other professions or other, um, you know, areas, you might have like, oh, like this didn't work. You know, let me just ask somebody and they'll point me in the right direction. Right. Um, you know, most of the research uh, that most PhD students do, you know, including myself, you're 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 literally, you know, having to deal with stuff that people just haven't had to deal with. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I. Everything I've done so far, everything, you know, I'll set it up and then look at the data and like, well, this makes no sense, you know, and you right. know, so you have to kind of decide, OK, well, am I just, you know, like, do I just not understand it, you know, or is it actually like the experiment didn't run right and, you know, trace down little, little details and, um, you know, and whatnot. And um, yeah, and so that process has taken quite a while. Um, and, you know, I, like you're catching me at a, a kind of a good time where the technique itself, you know, I, I've worked with enough and kind of developed enough where I can, you know, kind of speak about it, um, you know, and knowing that I've addressed a lot of these issues. But, yeah, I mean, it just takes time. I mean, um, you know, every little detail that you, uh, you pretty much every part of your data you need to be able to explain if you're working on something that, you know, no one's been uh, been able to measure so far. Right. Well, I, I brought that up. Obviously, obviously that wasn't like a surprise question. I mean, I bring this up really intentionally because, uh, we sometimes have people who listen who are considering grad school or in their first year. And I think that's a very important aspect to be aware of that you can be, uh, the smartest scientist or you can be in lab 24 seven, still is going to take time. Stuff is going to go wrong and you totally, you would never have guessed it will go wrong. So yeah, you're absolutely right, Logan. I mean, it's funny because I, I like when I started grad school and like did my first like bit of research, I was like, oh yeah, this is something, you know, you kind of like, oh yeah, this is something I just have to accept. And you think you've learned it, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's something you like learn over and over and over again. And it's just like, you know, right. uh, Right. Yeah. You see, you see the, uh, the older grad students and you, I remember thinking, oh, man, they kind of look just dead inside. And yeah. I don't think that it's that they're dead inside. I think that it's just you've uh, you've reached that Zen like state where problems come at you and you just go, yeah, of course. And, and yeah. you know, you deal with them. And, 
That's you so don't true. have that. Yeah, you don't. You don't have that optimistic hope where you go, oh, "I got results. Everything's going to be done in in a second now." So. Yeah, <laughs> it's so um, true. I mean, even honestly, even like the other scientists that are here out in Oak Ridge, like I, uh, I, I come up with a timeline. Like, hey, this is the timeline. I'm going to give myself about you know, we'll say one month to do this specific set of experiments and setup and whatnot. And you know, some of them will look at it and they'll be like, ah, that will probably take three or four months. And, you know, and you're yeah. like, what? No way. I mean, like, you just set it up and do it and it's done, right? I mean, and then, you know, you do it and you're just, and then you realize, like, okay, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so I, I have two questions I'd like to to ask. Um, but before we get to them, they're a little bit less focused on research. research. So before we get to them, what is the end game for your research? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Logan, you you have some really good questions, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <these laughs> Thank are, you. <laughs> yeah, these are really like you know thought provoking. Okay, so the end game uh, for my research is, uh, you know, I kind of mentioned that we're trying to study that boundary layer a little bit better. I, I'll present a kind of uh, a main problem that we're having in fusion plasmas. Okay. So right now, the way um, we we heat up the plasma is using microwaves. Um, and, you know, I, it, it's not so, it's not so different from, you know, the microwave oven that you might have, you know, in your, in your house, you know, um, the big problem with the plasma is that we have a fusion reactor, we stick, you know, a, a, a fancier version of this microwave, you know, on the side, and we pretty much try to use those microwaves to heat up the plasma. What we've di discovered is that those microwaves actually don't penetrate the plasma as well we, as we think they should. Um, which is a huge problem because, um, you know, if, it, it, like, uh, if we have like megawatts of energy that we're trying to put into the plasma, we can't afford to waste, you know, that energy. And so some of the figures I've heard is that, um, that uh, energy loss is like up to like, um, 70 to 80%. So yeah, wow. it's, yeah, it's insane. So, I mean, that's, you know, like that's a, a problem that has to be solved. So, you know, the end game for my research is that we take this setup, put it on a fusion reactor, and study that specific boundary, uh, boundary layer region between where the microwaves enter and the plasma, and pretty much be able to identify, like, okay, this is the reason why we can't uh, penetrate those, uh, those, uh, that layer into the plasma as well. Yeah, and, <clears throat> yeah, and you know, it'll take a little bit of doing... Um, you know, because like I said, technique is, you know, very new um, in plasma physics. You know, it's very new. Atomic physics has been using it for a while. Um, but yeah, so um, after we develop it, that's the end goal we're shooting for. Hmm. Okay, well, cool. Um, I'm I'm sure we'll get back onto that. But before I do, I wanted to ask, uh, so in the, in the uh, scope of grad school, like we were talking about before, are there any... Uh, in particular, challenges or setbacks that you faced um, that you care to share that you think would be valuable to share? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, there's been a couple. I mean, um, the main one, one challenge I think I faced was like uh, in undergrad. Honestly, you know, I can't say I was a very good student. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's because you know, I, I, like I said, you know, I entered nuclear engineering. Be like, yeah, this is gonna be awesome. But then, you know, you kind of like enter college and, you know, like it was all, you know, fission, nuclear power plant stuff based. And I was just like, you know, kind of 
like, okay, this is not as cool as I thought it was going to be. You know, I, I wasn't as stimulated. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I kind of, I think, got, you know, bored with the science of, you know, of that specifically. And that's why I think, you know, I gravitated towards, you know, industry where I was like, well, I, you know, I, I don't consider myself an academic, you know, so let me just hop in industry and, you know, start my life and make money and, and all that. Um, the challenge came was when I actually started to think, well, you know, if I want uh, a career that's more, um, you know, focused on problems that are cool to solve, well, you know, I think that's grad school looks like the, you know, the ticket. Um, and so the challenge came is like, okay, well, you know, my, uh, you know, my resume up to this point, it's not ideal for grad school. And, you know, so how, how do I make it work? Like, how do I show, you know, that I'm, uh, a good, you know, a good candidate and whatnot. And that kind of involved, like, you know, like, I, you know, taking some online classes, you know, graduate level classes that, and just, you know, kind of showing, you know, I can handle the work and that even, you know, getting into grad school, the challenge was, okay, and now you're here, but, you know, there's, uh, you know, all these kids with, you know, like, like had scholarships and fellowships coming into grad school and whatnot. How do you stand out there? Um, so it's kind of this, con you know, constant struggle of like, okay, like, um, how do I, you know, um, kind of meet, uh, meet the bar. And that challenge, you know, it, it I, you know, I think it, it played a positive role and a negative role, you know, in my grad school career where, um, you know, the negative role came at first where, you know, I, even talking to some of the professors, you know, they were like, yeah, you shouldn't be here, um, and whatnot. Uh, but I think the positive was it really like, you know, made me work, you know, like hard, um, you know, kind of saying, well, you know, it doesn't matter how I got here. I got here. Right. Um, and honestly, I think uh, the positive that kind of like, you know, like showed me and, you know, stuff that I try to, you know, at least uh, pass on is that, hey, like when you get into grad school, just do good work, you know, do good work and everything else will, you know, fall into place and um and whatnot because you know i don't consider myself a very smart guy i don't consider myself a very like uh you know super duper like um anything guy but i mean starting literally from the bottom you know i i was able to get a fellowship later on and um and then come to a national lab to do research i mean that um yeah and i i can't say that's you know a testament to any of those things it's just you know literally just doing good work <laughs> Well, I, I'm I'm sure then you're that you're smarter than you're giving yourself credit for, but I do agree that um, it's a it's an interesting environment to be placed into because most of the people who go into grad school typically are amongst the smartest or amongst the most motivated. Oh yeah, and uh, we've talked about this with previously with a, a guest Chase Salisbury that you're now placed amongst a group of the smartest of the best, et cetera. Um, and it can be really hard to find that, that place where you fit in. Um, but I think that's really sound advice is basically do your own thing and do it, do it to the best of your capabilities. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I'll even take that advice and apply it to, you know, um, I, I'll give the same advice to people thinking about where to go to grad school. You know, um, the one thing I found, especially, you know, they, you know, now towards the end of my career and having, you know, kind of uh, interface with a lot of grad students and scientists, um, it honestly, it, it, 
for the most part, it doesn't really matter where you go to grad school. Um, it just matters, you know, do you do good work, you know, while you're there? So, you know, anyone, mm -hmm. anyone struggling with, you know, um, those decisions or disappointed about, you know, where they might be. I mean, I'll say, it, honestly, from what I've seen, it, it's not a large factor at all. Yeah, I I had a chance to sit down with our associate dean of optics the other day. Yeah. And... I've been having the same feeling as you get, as yeah. you go longer and longer in grad school, I think you kind of have more and more of the realization of what uh, the actual purpose is of grad school. I think yeah. when you go into it, you think, Oh, well, the reason I'm going is so I can do this specific experiment. And uh, the, the associate Dean, uh, Dr. Koshal, his perspective was, well, if you go to grad school, you get a master's, you're basically getting a um, very high skilled education which would be the equivalent of like a law or, or a law degree or um, something like that. Whereas if you get a PhD, you're certainly getting the education, but also signaling or demonstrating that you have the ability to do highly skilled independent work. Yeah. Um, it's not that you graduate and people go, sometimes it might be, but most of the time I don't think that you graduate and people say, oh, perfect. You're just a person we've been waiting years to hire. Yeah. And now that you finish the research, we'll, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, I always like to, you know, point, like the one thing that it always, I don't know where, I don't know at what point I had this realization, but I don't know if you ever watched the, the show house. Um, uh -huh. yeah, you know, this guy is amazing at what he does. Like uh, at no point do they ever say like where he went to med school. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't ever think about that. <laughs> huh. um, so do you have a pretty tight-knit community there amongst the plasma researchers? Um, yeah, here, uh, you know, at, uh, at the lab, we definitely do, um, you know, because it's, uh, I, it's a, I, I say a handful, but quite a large community here, because here specifically, we, um, we have a plasma physics focus, and on top of that, infusion. So, yeah, pretty tight-knit, although... Our research paths don't really intersect that much, but, you know, the community is very tight. Right. I think that can be another really helpful thing is uh, being able to, to even even if it's not totally overlap, being able to bounce ideas off other people or at yeah. least complain to other people about why something totally went wrong and yeah. maybe they'll have <laughs> insights or... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of nice to, you know, you see kind of a, a phenomenon or a problem that you just, you know, mention it to a few people and people here are really helpful. They'll, you know, help you kind of think about it, you know. Um, and whatnot. Right. Nice. Yeah. Um, speaking of, did you, so have you guys had any unexpected results? We have, um, you know, it's uh, funny, some of the theories that I've been working with, um, you know, I'm specifically working with like spectral line broadening um, mechanisms and, you know, how, how they behave and whatnot. Um, some of the, the stuff that I'm, I'm looking at, it actually like uh, it suggests that theoretical frameworks that traditionally have not been applicable at my parameter space, they are extremely relevant. Um, hmm. And so, you know, even me trying to publish some work on it, I've gotten a lot of pushback. Um, you know, where the reviewers, they'll say, oh, you know, that that's that doesn't apply here. Um, and, you know, you try to make the case like, oh, you know, it can be applicable. Um, and that's actually what's driving these experiments I'm doing right now, you know, because uh, some of the papers, you know, I, I think this 
this experimental data I can shoot in there and be like, no, this theory, like, I, I hear what you're saying. And traditionally, that's been the case. But, you know, we're discovering new uh, evidence that that's not true. Right. Yeah, yeah that's a. Uh what's what do you do what's your coping mechanism because i have yeah. another i have another peer in lab um and a co-paper that we're i'm i'm a co-author on her paper yeah but uh we've had i think it's finally getting published but there is a number of reviewers that were like no this that's that that algorithm just doesn't work for this yeah. stuff and we went well, did you look at the paper because it does yeah. so what's what was your response um you know i will not lie and my first response was like like are you kidding me like this is like <laughs> i i did every like and it's right there you know you read it and you know um but uh you know i the only other way i was able to kind of swallow it was like okay well like, let's look at it from, like, the viewpoint of someone not, you know, doing my research, right? They would kind of say the same thing, um, and, you know, you try to understand it. And um, and for me, you know, the one thing that always kind of makes me feel better is if I know the steps to kind of, like, make it better. You know, kind of like, okay, this is the problem. They're not biting. You know, what can I do, it? you know, to, like, actually show them, right? And so I think for me, like, once I figured that out and kind of hammered that out, I felt a lot better. I was like, okay, cool. They're not, they're not agreeing with me right now, but if I show them X, Y, and Z, then, you know, they really can't argue against it. Right. Right. Definitely. Uh, yeah, that's the, that's the more, the, the more mature response, which I think you have to learn as a grad student to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> first instinct is definitely like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know about this yeah. reviewer, but <laughs> I think when I first got my review comments back, I was like, okay, I like I was trying to figure out who this reviewer actually was. I was like, okay, based on what they said, you know, this is the research. I was like, all right, I think I have an idea. I know where it is. All right, eggs are in my car. Right, right. <laughs> right. right. And you're like, okay, yeah, this is the, that's not the right way to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a tough thing for people who haven't submitted or had papers come back. Where I think you, the vast majority of cases, you have a very valid critical response backwards because you want uh, the community wants the best papers out there and you want to be sure that the published work is robust. Um, there's been, I brought this up with Chris, there's been a, a lot of issues in other fields um, that really rely heavily on observed statistical phenomena, specifically like behavioral sciences, economics, psychology. There's yeah. been a lot of like repeat experiments where the outcomes are just totally different. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, so you don't want that to happen. Yeah. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to have that reaction of like, oh, wow, okay, this is your, <laughs> your responses, which don't sound too nice, are actually for the benefit of me, I suppose. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's tough. Um, do you have, Chris's work ha had a lot of uh, statistical dependence um, and interpretation. Is that similar with your work? Um. Uh, I'll say it does have a lot of statistical dependence, but uh, the interpretation um, uh, is less dependent on the statistics. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I say that because uh, the data I'm taking is actually affected by a lot of the turbulence in my plasma. Um, so to improve the measurements, and I, I, you know, usually we just say to get better statistics, you just take a huge chunk of data um, and it'll average it, and, you know. So it looks a lot nicer, you know, a lot less noisy. So that's right. kind of the statistical um, part of the measurement, you know, that I'm trying to 
um, employ, um, the interpretation is a lot less dependent on the statistics themselves. Because if you have a set data set that's averaged, you know, and uh, it looks uh, it looks noise free, then you know from that you can't really say, oh, like you know, you like the statistics aren't enough or something like that. You know, you just well, the data looks. Um, it, it, the averaging of the data looks sufficient, and we have to take it for what it is. Right, right, definitely. Yeah. Huh. Um, so, what do you think? Uh, what do you think's in the future for your type of applications and plasma more broadly? Ah, that's a good question. You know, um, I mentioned that you were doing these very high resolution measurements, and even though you know the application I'm working for is for you know a fusion reactor. Um, the measurements that I'm making really have not been done in plasmas in general, you know. Um, so say you have like a, a little plasma reactor that um, Samsung is using or any other like, you know, um, semiconductor manufacturer is using um, to make these measurements um, or sorry, to make these uh, semi like cell phones, you know, um, right, screens, right. screens and whatnot. Um, if they want like, OK, these are the parameters in our plasma can we measure them to make the process better? Um, and so if they have a better control on what the parameters are doing, they can actually uh, make them better. So it, uh, essentially what it boils down to is that my research could be used, you know, in um, if they wanted to in, uh, you know, um, some of these other applications of plasmas and get better performance out of it, which, you know, essentially could lead to like cheaper cell phones. Um, Right, people, right. Yeah. Or, or not cheaper because, you know, we live in a very capitalist society, et cetera, you know, <laughs> but it, a right. cell phone with more stuff, you know, that you can put it. Right. In. Yeah. What about, uh, are we going to ever see, uh, this, this is a, this is a totally unfair question. Yeah. Are we ever going to see like, uh, plasma reactors and have power generation out of those? Oh, that is, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, so it's it's not fair because I know yeah. that this has been the question on a bunch of people's minds for a long time. So. Yeah, you know, it, you're absolutely right. It's um, I'll say within our lifetime, we might see a fusion reactor hooked up to the grid. Um, hmm. um, kind of the timeline for this research is right now they're working on uh, uh, building a large scale reactor in France. You know, it's called um, it's called ITER, the International Thermonuclear IT Experimental Reactor, um, ITER. Um, and so that's being made in France. It's going to be the largest one um, ever built. Um, and this reactor, it's a commercial size reactor, but it won't be hooked up to the grid. You know, it's kind of we're upscaling everything and seeing how it works. Once that reactor is built and we get a lot of information out of it, then they're going to build the next one. And the next mm -hmm. one um, is going to be connected to the grid. And so the timeline for that is they're saying, I've heard, um, around 2030 is when this uh, ITER reactor in France is going to get done being built and, they'll be, and be operating. And then about 2040 is when the next one that's hooked up to the grid is supposed to be, uh, um, you know, they, like essentially started up. Huh. That's yeah. pretty wild. Yeah. So maybe, but I, I mean... We've been saying, you know, in the fusion community, like, yeah, we'll have this ready in the next 20 years for like the past 60 years. So um, right, we're right. working on it. It's always, it's always the next 20 years type yeah, of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and we'll I'll I'll be sure that we put a link to that uh, information about that reactor on the podcast. Um, so what about your what about yourself? What's the what are you gonna do when you finish up? Uh, um, so an, another I, hated student yeah. <laughs> by grad or another hated yeah, question by grad students. It is, say. but it, I mean it's a good one. Um, you know, my plan right now um, is you know I've kind of seen. Uh, I've seen the academic research side of things. I've seen, you know, um, industry, even though it's not plasma physics, I've seen industry and I've seen like a national lab now, um, you know, kind of the one I'm so far, there's been nothing that's kind of said that, Oh yeah, I absolutely need to be in one place or the other. So my plan is, um, you know, to, to pretty much shotgun, um, you know, my, uh, my resume to a few different places, um, a couple of them being industry, a couple of them being, you know, national apps, a couple of them being academia, um, and seeing kind of what, uh, what feels the best. Um, and I don't know, it's a very non-academic answer, but, um, but, you know, things like location and whatnot, those are like, you know, kind of becoming, um, you know, they're more important to me than I thought it were. So, um, yeah, so hopefully, uh, you know, get a few opportunities and see which one, um, speaks to me the best. Yeah. No, I, I think that's actually the best answer I've ever heard yeah. from a grad student. <laughs> because normally they say like, well, I'm going to this company or I'm going into industry or academics and it's kind of, there's not a lot behind it. So I, I, yeah. I, I think that's a great answer. Um, well, all right. I guess just the last thing before we uh, uh, finish up is, do you have any recommendations for either students considering graduate school in nuclear engineering or those that are early on in the process? Um, I do. Um, the first one, you know, we covered a while back, which is just do good work um, wherever uh, wherever you go. Um, and the second one, uh, I guess this would be more applicable to students that are considering grad school. Um, and uh, I, this advice would be that, you know, um, if you're considering grad school you're typically you're not going to make more money um, you know there's been plenty of uh numbers put to the fact that you know the time that you lose um you know from working in grad school and then you know the pay bump when you increase it kind of levels out to if you just work straight from from bachelor's um, so right if, yeah so if money is not the reason to go to grad school really you have to ask yourself is um if it's, you know what kind of work do you want to do if, if you're okay with um, kind of being part of a system and you're just, you know, uh, you know, uh, being kind of like, okay, this is your task, you implement it, and that's done, um, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, you know, people make a lot of money doing just that, right? <laughs> but, you know, if you, if you really feel that itch like, hey, I want to solve more complicated problems, then that's when you need to, you know, consider grad school. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I, I don't know. I agree pretty strongly with that. I think uh, if you're going into grad school for the money, you've made a terrible, terrible decision <laughs> yeah. and you should get out now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and like we said earlier, you're going to have so many things go wrong and take time, et cetera, that, uh, and, and we've talked to other guests and there's no guarantee that you'll necessarily be working on, you know, that one project that you think just sounds amazing. So yeah, it does take yeah. a lot of, a lot of consideration, a lot of, I, I think you phrase it best that you have to be the personality that wants to do something 
it hasn't been done and that's challenging and new. Yeah, absolutely. Um, otherwise, you won't have a good time. So. <laughs> yeah, and you know, one other thing that I'll kind of stick in there for like students that are already in grad school um, is, uh, you know, I feel like this is one thing that I feel like is you know definitely neglected in grad school. Even I've neglected it. Is kind of just take care of yourself. Like you know, it's going to be a long haul. Um, and so I mean, make time for yourself, you know, um, make time for friends and family and, um, and it'll be okay. I mean that, you know, just make time for yourself cause you know, um, and make sure you're also having fun while you do it. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer now in like, there's no point in doing it if you're not having fun while you're doing it. So, yeah, no, that's, that's excellent advice. I, I, I want to piggyback one other thing onto it, which is don't take the superstar attitude because if you work yourself dead, you're you're not going to get done any quicker. Yeah, it's, it's just not going to happen. It's a very good point. Very very good point. Um. Well, okay. Thanks for doing the interview. Yeah. No. Definitely, Logan. Thanks for having me. Um. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode. We look forward to any comments or feedback you may have. To leave a comment, please visit our website at loft.optics.arizona.edu slash podcast or our Facebook, which is SPL Report. Additionally, you can email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. Lastly, we would like to mention that we are always looking for new topics or people to interview. So if you have a topic that you would like us to cover, please let us know. Thank you and have a good week.